we continue our walk through the Holy Scriptures, book by book. Today, we are going to cover 25% of the New Testament. Isn't it interesting that the Lord used one man, thank you, Gideon, to write 25% of the New Testament. We're going to see this day how the Lord moved a rich man by the name of Theophilus, who was eager to know if the things that are being preached around Jerusalem and around the, the Mediterranean are in fact true. And the Lord moved this rich man, Theophilus, as uh, most likely a patron to Luke to write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We're going to treat these two books together today because they are written by one hand as a volume one and a volume two of uh, the same body of work. Please turn and look with me at verse uh, 1, chapter 1 of Luke. We just read that a moment ago, but I want to look at it again together with you. Luke writes in Luke 1, that inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Likewise, we see in Acts 1, as Luke introdu introduces the second volume. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus. So here we see Theophilus mentioned again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taking up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so what is going on here, and why is Luke writing this book <clears throat> for Theophilus? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> there is preaching going throughout the Mediterranean world that a man in Jerusalem died and rose from the dead and that this is a good news for all people so churches are being planted throughout the ancient Near Eastern world heralding a gospel that came from Jerusalem and yet now is being purported to be given for all people good news to people like me and you who are not Jewish, and yet this Jewish Messiah is doing a kingdom work beyond Israel itself. But while this is going on, there's also false teachers, as well as the Jews themselves, 
going around and saying, that's not really true. That's not really true. Or they'll say something, if you want to participate in the Jewish kingdom of God, you must become a Jew. And they're stirring up doubt. They're stirring up doubt among the believers. We won't have time to look at all the examples in the book of Acts today, but we see on several occasions where the apostles go in to the synagogue and preach and people believe, and then the Jews stir up dissension and make people doubt. You know, we have the same thing happen today that is happening then, though albeit a little bit differently. You know, what do we see today? The word is preached that Christ has died to save sinners. That Christ is building a church from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But what do we hear rumored today? It's just a superstition. Or that's just someone's own cultural appropriation who are you to spread your religion around the world? I mean, ironically and oddly enough, Christianity is now considered the white man's religion, which couldn't be further from the truth, both in terms of where it came from and where it has spread. Even in the book of Acts, we hear about Wolves coming in from the flock to deceive and to lead astray. And those same things happen today. And I think most of us at one time or another in our Christian walk have ourselves doubted. <clears throat> Are these things really true? Did these things really happen? And we wrestle and that's why the Lord used a physician named Luke by the financial patronage of someone named Theophilus who was likely doubting or uncertain. He was wrestling with the assurance of his salvation and if these things really happen. So Luke writes, as he says to Theophilus in Luke 1.4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been. So I didn't give you the first point. We just jumped right into it. But for your note taking, we see here first that Luke writes to give a certain truth of Christ's global kingdom mission. So that's point one, which we just unpacked to give a certain truth of Christ's global kingdom mission. So how do we see Luke give this Certainty of truth, or at least write his orderly account that we might have certainty of truth. And I'm going to give you three things then in light of, in light of this this morning. Three ways, three big ways in which Luke helps us to have a certainty of truth concerning Christ's global mission. Because that's what this whole two-volume work is about. It's about Christ's global kingdom mission. 
And Luke wants Theophilus, as he would want us as readers today, to have a certainty concerning the things that have been taught. So here are three ways that we are given certainty about Christ's global kingdom mission. Number one, that the kingdom of God was born under Rome and it ends in Rome and then goes from there to the ends of the earth. Born under Rome and ends in Rome. So in Luke chapter 2, we see more than any other gospel writer, Luke is interested in showing us all of these Roman emperors and Roman uh, government leaders and rulers. So for example, in Luke 2.1, and none of the other gospel writers do this, Luke says that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Luke mentions Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, and the king of the global kingdom is born under the rule of the Roman Caesar. Likewise, in three and Luke chapter three, verse one, Luke mentions several Roman leaders here, where he says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Triconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So again, here Luke wants to mention all of these historical Roman figures who were in complete rule over Israel in the ancient Near East at this time. And yet it's under this Roman pagan rule that the king of the global kingdom is born and that the prophet to bear witness to the coming king, the Messiah, prophesies and prepares the way for Jesus. And the reason we see one of the neat literary features of Luke in Acts is how Luke bookends, again, we've used this idea of bookend, like something that holds up both ends of a shelf, you know, a stack of books. Luke bookends the kingdom being born under Rome with the kingdom being preached freely from Rome at the end. So turn all the way to the end of Acts then, and we're going to see how the kingdom is born under Rome and ends as it were. It doesn't really end, maybe that's a bad way of putting it, but the Acts ends in Rome with the gospel being preached freely, the kingdom being preached freely. And Luke, or Luke records and tells us how Paul is under arrest at this time. He's under house arrest in Rome. Nevertheless, he writes in Acts 28, 28, as Paul is speaking here, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen, 
And then Luke adds, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So despite Paul being under house arrest, Luke ends his two-work treatise for Theophilus to give him a certainty of the things that have been taught, that despite Rome's best efforts, the gospel of the kingdom of God is being proclaimed without boldness and without hindrance. That nothing, not even almighty Rome as it were, not even the Roman Empire can stop the proclamation of the kingdom of God. So Luke bookends this two-volume work with the kingdom being born under Rome and the kingdom being preached freely without hindrance in Rome. And of course, that's going to lead us beyond to the ends of the earth, but we'll get to that a little bit later in this sermon. So let's look at a second way, then, that Luke helps give us a certainty of truth concerning Christ's global kingdom mission. We see it in Luke's emphasis on the good news being preached to the Gentiles. So for example, in Jesus's opening salvo, in the beginning of his ministry, we find in Luke 4 that Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown. And Luke tells us that Jesus goes into the synagogue, and part of the, the morning worship at the synagogue would be to read from the scrolls of the law and of the prophets and of the writings. And Jesus stands up in his hometown, his home church, as it were. The church he most likely, the synagogue, of course, he most likely grew up in. And he stands up. And he, as Luke records in Luke 4, 17, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we're told that then Jesus went and sat back down and said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Could you imagine what it would have been like to hear Jesus read Isaiah 61 as a Jew under the oppression of the Roman Empire in Nazareth, in the backwaters of the Israelite kingdom. And to hear Jesus say today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And Luke goes on to describe how they were in awe. Luke says in verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. 
words, Jesus went on to say to them, as they say, isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't that the carpenter's son? Jesus says to them in verse 24, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. In other words, the Lord sent the prophet to heal a Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that in the days of the prophets, the people, the quote-unquote people of God, doubted God because they refused to listen to the prophets. So what did God do? He sent the prophets to Gentiles. If we understand the context of Isaiah 61, and we read further in it, we'd also see that the year of the Lord's favor is also the year of God's judgment. And the Jews who heard this in the synagogue knew that. And we're told in verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. It was blasphemous and hateful to these Jews who heard this message from Jesus that God would have mercy on the very kinds of people that were oppressing them in the Roman Empire. And they hated that message so much that they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. It's difficult in our day, at least in our current, our particular context, to think of who that kind of person would be that we would think is beyond salvation, or that people group that we think would be beyond salvation. And so much so that if Jesus stood up here and said, I'm going to save some of these people, we would want to throw them off the cliff. We would want to drown him in the fjord. But that's what's going on here. The idea that the good news would go to Gentiles and not to all the Jews was hateful. And they sought to kill him. But so see what Luke is doing here. He's, he's telling Theophilus, this is a story we only have in Luke. It's in, and it's interesting that Luke chooses to put this first at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That Jesus' kingdom program, as it were, was not merely to go to the Jews, but to the Gentiles also. And just as Theophilus is probably witnessing persecution in his city, and certainly is aware of persecution in the Christian churches that are beginning to spring up, 
that just as he's watching people hate Christians in his day, so they also hated Christ. He gives them their name. How else do we see the good news going to the Gentiles? We're going to skip over now to the book of Acts, and not, not because there's not a lot of wonderful things to look at in the book of Luke, but covering Matthew and Mark last week, uh, we, uh, you get a lot of the same stuff, though Luke arranges it in his own way, and it is worth its own study. I hope we can do a series in the book of, of Luke where we go passage by passage one day. But because we have two books to cover, we're going to spend a little more time in Acts this morning. But we certainly see the good news going to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. So I want to point out a few passages that kind of help see this, this theme that gets developed that begins with Jesus' own ministry in, Act, in Luke 4. But in Acts 1, we find the apostles in Jerusalem. And in verse 6, Luke records that when they had come together, they asked him, that is Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And here we see that still the apostles don't quite get what God is doing. You see, the Jews were expecting a Jewish Messiah to bring about a physical Jewish kingdom to restore the kingdom of Israel in the land of Canaan. That was their expectation. And that is still the expectation of unbelieving Jews today. But Jesus' mission was far greater. He's not coming to simply reclaim the land of Canaan. He's coming to reclaim the universe. Every square inch. And however that comports to the spiritual realms. Jesus is coming to reclaim everything. Because his, his kingdom will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. And the spirit has not yet been poured out on the apostles. And on the early church. And so Jesus says to them, Acts 1, 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now this is the key verse. But you will receive power, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. Christ's kingdom mission is not a local kingdom mission. It's a global kingdom mission. He tells these guys who are still getting it figured out, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the really neat structure in Luke and Acts is we have another kind of envelope or chiastic structure. Remember we talked about the kingdom being born under Rome and then being preached freely in Rome. So Luke 1 begins under Rome. Acts 28 begins in Rome. 
and in the middle is Jerusalem. And we see this trip of Jesus, as it were, from being under Rome, going to Jerusalem, and then going back to the Rome, Rome and the ends of the earth. And you have this, this traveling through Galilee you know, and Samaria, Judea, and then it happens again as the apostles then take that from Jerusalem as the epicenter, then back out. So you have this envelope structure with Jerusalem in the middle and this theme of Rome on the ends. It's one of the neat kind of literary structures of Luke and Acts that help highlight this idea of this global kingdom mission. But at any rate, Jesus is sending the apostles out, not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, but to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8, that is the theme verse for the rest of Acts, as we pick up this theme of the good news going to the Gentiles. The day that everyone was waiting for happened at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church and the apostles began to preach and preach in such a way that people heard it in their own language and some thought they were drunk and Peter stood up and gave his first sermon. And at the end of that, as Peter is seeking to show all those who gathered in Jerusalem how Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He is the Holy One of Psalm 16 that did not see decay. He is the path to God, the fulfillment of all scripture. And Luke records then in Acts 2.37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And we might think, does it just end there? Is this just a promise for the Jews? Peter goes on. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This gospel promise is not something that's only yours if you have the right DNA. It's for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Everyone, even to the ends of the earth. So that if you hear the call of God and believe, this promise is for you as well. And this is the, this is the call. This is why we go out. This is why God sends us to places like Norway. And it's why he sends you to your workplaces. It's why he called us together from the nations. So that we could bear witness that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This gets to be our mission too. And he goes on, save yourselves from this crooked generation. We could speak the same today. And we are told that so those who received his word were baptized 
and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine? Luke is giving Theophilus enough certainty about Christ's global kingdom mission, the good news to the Gentiles. I want to point out a few other places here under this second point today. Acts 10, for example. There were a lot of laws that were legitimate laws of the Mosaic Covenant that kept the Jews separate from the Gentiles. Indeed, one of the reasons why the Israelite kingdom fell was because Israel failed to do that. Think of Solomon, for example, with all those pagan women he married who the scriptures tell us led his heart astray and all the idolatry that happened. There was a period of time when Israel was to keep themselves separate from the nations. But not now. The work that Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection, pouring out the spirit, was un to unleash a new, a new way, a new dispensation of time where this gospel is going out to the world. But those food laws and those, those old laws that are going away, that's why we need the book of Hebrews to understand how the Mosaic law was for a time, or read Galatians 3, how the law was there for a time, went away now that the sun, the air had come, and the promise was given. But they're struggling to get this. And in Acts 10, Peter is called to go to a Gentile's house, a guy named Cornelius. But he's like, I can't go into that house. Right? I'm filling in between the lines. But the idea, Peter's tension is this guy's a Gentile. I will make myself unclean if I go into his house. And we are told, as Luke records in Acts 10, that Peter fell into a trance. The Lord gave Peter a vision. And in Acts 10, verse 13, Luke records, And there came a voice to Peter, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter has just seen all of these birds and animals come down on a, on a cloth, as it were. And then a, he hears a voice, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And here Peter begins to understand that these old food laws have gone away for the expansion of the gospel and the kingdom. These Laws that separated Jew and Gentile are going away for the sake of Christ's global kingdom mission. All of this comes to a head in Acts 15, one of the most important councils that, and, uh, that we see here in the early church is in Acts 15. What do we do because Paul's been appointed as, a, as an apostle to the Gentiles, Peter's an apostle to the Jews? Well, what do we do because how do they fellowship? And everyone's having trouble figuring out what to do because the Gentiles are offending the Jewish Christians and the, and the Jewish believers are thinking they need to require the Gentile Christians to follow 
the old Jewish food laws. What do we do? How can the church be united when we have these things in between us? And so the apostles gather, the churches gather together to decide what to do. In Acts 15. And at the end of the deliberation, one of the apostles stands up and says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So what they decide here knowing that this gospel is going where there are synagogues. They're trying to lower the offense as much as possible so that the gospel work can go to Jews and Gentiles together. But at the same time, they're not requiring Gentiles to follow the old laws because they're done away with. But in order to allow the gospel to move more freely, they're saying, Please abstain from the things associated with the temple. Okay, that's what we're seeing here. The, the temple was associated, the, the, when I say the temple, not the Jewish temple, but from the, from the Greco-Roman pagan temple. Because the, the things polluted by idols is the meat that's sacrificed. It was at the temples that there was tons of sexual immorality, that there were raves and, and parties and cultic prostitution. And the stuff strangled and from blood, all of this stuff, all of, we don't have time to dive into this, but all of this stuff was stuff associated with the pagan temples. And let's not bring that in. Even if meat is clean, as it were, if you buy it in the marketplace, that's a discussion for, for Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Regardless of that stuff, let's not associate with that for the sake of unity in the body for the sake of the Jews who are in the synagogues in every city, as they said. We see also in Acts 9, to give Theophilus hope of this global mission, that God appointed a man to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Just in case we're not convinced yet, in Acts 9, we read about a man named Saul who's been persecuting the church. And in a vision, the Lord calls Ananias to go find this man, Saul. It's like find the number one like persecutor of Christians who could kill you. I want you to go find that guy and bring him because I've appointed him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Saul has this Damascus Road experience where the Lord Jesus calls out to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because all persecution in the end is not to God's people, but to Jesus himself. And the Lord redeems Saul, this persecutor of the church. Ananias goes and finds him. And in Acts 9.15, he says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
But here Luke shows Theophilus and us that God appointed a particular man to bring the good news to people like you and me. His name is Saul, and he will be known as Paul in, in chapter 13. One last thing to point out on the good news going to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, and this picks up the rest of the, the book of Acts, is we see the first of Paul's missionary journeys begin here with Barnabas. Luke records in 13.1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manayan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And now we see the gospel going to the ends of the earth. As Paul is going to take the gospel around the, the Mediterranean Sea, even into Greece. He gets brought to Rome. There, we read of four missionary journeys for Paul. The last, the last one takes him to Rome under house arrest. And we know from other books like Romans that he hopes to even one day bring the gospel to places like Spain. God is sending his apostles out to bring the good news to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. So we've seen how Luke has given a certainty, both in terms of the kingdom being born under Rome, number one, the kingdom being born under Rome and being preached freely in Rome. We've seen here now, number two, how Luke is seeking to give us certainty of the truth, showing us how the good news is going to the Gentiles from the beginning of Jesus's ministry to the end of Paul's in Rome. Now, third and finally, Paul gives us certainty of the truth by showing us that this mission, number three, that the mission is fueled by the word and spirit. This mission is fueled by the word and spirit. Something profound is going to have to happen for the kingdom to be successful, isn't it? Because... Left to our own devices, we are just like those Jews who sought to throw Jesus off the cliff. We are hard-hearted. We are stupid. We are obstinate and stubborn. And we hate what is good. Something's got to happen if there's any hope of success for the mission. So how is it that this mission is going to spread? Is this mission going to spread by us strapping swords to our sides? People have tried that, right? Christianity came to this country that way, didn't it? Convert or be headed? Convert or be killed? Is that how this mission is going to be accomplished? The Jews were expecting a militant messiah. To bring the kingdom by force. How is the kingdom going to come? 
we see in Luke 24 that it's got to come by the Spirit. It's got to come by the Spirit, by the revelation, by eyes being opened. It began with the apostles, Acts 20, or excuse me, Luke 24. Luke 24, we confess this after our scripture readings this morning, but Jesus appears to some of the disciples on the road going to Emmaus. They're telling, they didn't know it was Jesus at first. We're told later by Luke that their eyes were open to see who he was. But Jesus said to them in Luke 24, 25, as they're grieving that their Messiah was just killed. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So here, Jesus, I, wouldn't you love to be in this conversation as Jesus takes them through the law and the prophets to show all the places that talked about him? And then down in verse 44, after Jesus appears to his disciples uh, in another place, we read, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The way this kingdom is going to come is by the opening of minds, by the grace of Christ, the outpouring of the spirit, which will happen in Acts 2. To see Jesus in the scriptures, which is not a natural thing. It is not a natural thing. It's not a natural thing for us to sing from the Psalms. Think about it. It's kind of weird, isn't it? These are Psalms. They, were, they weren't written last. They weren't written three months ago playing on the radio, right? It's not the new stuff. This is 2,000, 3,000, say more like 3,000-year-old songs. That's kind of weird. They're written for Jews. Well, that's weird because we're not Jewish. Why do we sing them? Why did the early church sing them and pray, pray them? It's verse 44. Because everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were to be fulfilled. Now we sing and we read the scriptures as fulfilled in Jesus. We sing the Psalms as fulfilled in Jesus. Or that will be fulfilled in his second coming. Jesus gives us a whole new way of seeing scripture that is not natural. This kingdom is going to be fueled by the word and spirit. We see that, of course, in Acts 2 when the spirit is poured out on the church at Pentecost. But I want to close by just showing you one of the, one of the really 
cool or amazing features about the book of Acts. And it's that the book of Acts is divided into these uh, seven parts. And there's a summary given at the end of each part that links the word and the spirit, the word and or the spirit, to the way that this kingdom mission is going to go out. Lest we be those who divorce, say we're a word church or we're a spirit church, Luke shows us that the spirit and the word work together to advance Christ's global kingdom mission. And we're going to end by looking at this. I would encourage you to write these references down and study them this week. But we begin with Acts 2, verses 46 and 47. The first section ends with this summary statement. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We see that it is the Lord who's going to add these people day by day to the number being saved. Back up in Acts 2, uh, just before what I read, Acts 2.42, we have the connection with the word here as well. And the Lord adds to their number day by day those who are being saved. As Luke describes what the early church did as they gathered together. We see it more clearly then in the next summary statement at the, uh, the end of chapter 6. to Acts 6 verse 7. We read, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here we see Luke highlight the word. What increased? The word of God continued to increase. The gospel is being preached more and more and it is the gospel that is multiplying the church and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem at the end of the third section of Acts Acts 9.31 we see Luke point to the spirit so the church throughout all Judea in Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So how does the church grow here? It's in their fear of God and the comfort of the Spirit. The fear of God and the comfort of the Spirit. Bear in mind, in this section that, that Acts 9 concludes, we see the stoning of Stephen. We see bitter persecution being wrought on the church. In fact, persecution is another thing that spreads the gospel, which is a theme in this book. But at the end of that, how are they built up? The church was built up by despite hell being rained upon them, they remain fearful of God 
and they are comforted by the Spirit. There is a supernatural grace being lavished on them by the Spirit that gives them comfort and allows the church to multiply despite and in spite of the persecution. The fourth section of the book of Acts ends with another summary statement, Acts 12, 24, where we read, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Again, it is the preaching of the gospel. It's this preaching of this new way where both Jews and Gentiles are receiving the inheritance, the promise of the Holy Spirit. They're receiving the gospel and the word of God is increasing and multiplying. The fifth section concludes in Acts 16.5 with Luke recording it. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. We see that the faith here, this is one of the few places in the, the New Testament where faith is used as an object rather than like your faith to believe. The faith, like the confession. We see that also in Jude, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Here we say that this body of doctrine that is the faith is strengthening the church. And in light of that strengthening, the church is multiplying. That's one of the reasons why we focus on the confession of faith in our evening services. Because it's one of the ways that we are strengthened and we multiplying. And I know we are, we are ministering. I know Christians in Norway feel like it's an uphill battle and we're beating our heads against granite rock to see the kingdom of God spread. But if there's any hope for the church in Norway, if there's any hope at all, this includes any church in the world and any region, if there's any hope for us to multiply, it will be because the church is strengthened in the faith. And so we must teach sound doctrine. We must demand sound doctrine be taught. We must cherish it as a church because the Lord uses the faith. Sound doctrine to strengthen and multiply the church. And may we one day be able to say that these churches in this land are strengthened in the faith and that they're increasing in numbers daily. May God do such a work in you. The sixth section of Acts ends with another summary statement and very similar, Acts 19. So the word of the Lord, Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's one of my prayers for us, brothers and sisters, is that the word through our church family, not just from this pulpit, but you as you go out, that the word of the Lord would increase and prevail mightily. Despite everything that the devil throws at the church, that the word would increase and would conquer.
Finally then, as we've seen already, the book of Acts then concludes with one final summary statement about Paul and his house arrest, Acts 31, Acts 28, 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Acts ends with there being no hindrance to the increase of the word that is taking place. Friends, word and spirit, that's what we need. If we have any hope of seeing our families changed and cities and nations, it's the word and the spirit. And God in subsequent church history has from time to time allowed his spirit to be poured out in an increased measure. And every time that a true work of God has happened in a city or in a church or in a region or in a country, it's been by the word and the spirit. And just as quickly as that happened, there's been counterfeits and the enemy seeks to quench the work of God. But brothers and sisters, even if we ourselves fall under a bitter, cruel oppressor and empire, the gospel will continue to move unhindered according to the will of God till our Lord Jesus returns. Acts ends with this open statement of the apostles taking the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, here in Rome, and because Jesus gave the apostles a commission to take it to the ends of the earth, we have this open ending where the gospel goes. And were we to have the time to meaningfully study church history and study those seasons of revivals to see that the very same things that happen in Acts have happened throughout church history and can still happen today. And that's the certainty that Luke wanted Theophilus to have. And that's the certainty that he wants you and me to have as we labor for the gospel in Stavanger and beyond. Luke has written 25% of the New Testament to give us a certain tr certainty, to know the certain truth of Christ's global kingdom it really happened, and it really is happening. And even today, you and I are a part of that. So let's depend on our Lord who gives the Spirit and who makes the Word of God effective and all-powerful to serve His ends from shore to shore to the ends of the earth. Let's put our hope in God, brothers and sisters. Let's cling fast to our assurance of faith in his power to use his word to save sinners from the depths of hell. To give sight to the blind. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and deliver us from the kingdom of darkness. May God do such a work in our day.
to ordinary people like you and me and through an ordinary church like First Christ. Amen. Gracious Lord, Gracious Lord, think of John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And Lord, we thank you for your word for the spirit that made it effectual when we read, when we heard the gospel preached and we believed and were saved. And I pray that our hope would be on nothing, as we sang this morning, not on chariots or horses, but in the Lord our God, who has chosen to shame the world by saving his people with a book and to shame our pride by saving us by the Spirit as the only way that we could have a saving knowledge of you. Lord, I pray that you would work in power in our day. I pray that the word of God would increase and prevail mightily in our midst. And I pray that the gospel would be proclaimed in this city with all boldness and without hindrance that more and more people may be folded into your church to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. In Christ, our global king, we pray. Amen. Well, we have a lot of reasons.